as we continue on, we're looking in church history, we're in the modern age, and we're talking kind of what's going on post-World War II in the world, and how that's changing some things. This week and the next time we come together, we're going to be talking a lot about discoveries and divisions. There's a lot of things where people are like, oh, this is new, and a lot of things where people are splitting this, splitting that, splitting churches, splitting countries, a lot of that going on at this particular time in history. 1945, the Nag Hammadi Codices are discovered. Anybody ever hear of the Nag Hammadi Codices? Okay, so before I go any further, what's a Nag Hammadi and what's a Codices, right? Because I don't want anybody getting lost just in the words. First off, Nag Hammadi, medium-sized city in Egypt along the Nile. So if you ever hear anybody talking about the Nag Hammadi Library, it's based on the name of the town that it's found near. 1945. Two brothers, two farmers, are digging around the, for fertilizer near the caves, uh, the nearby cliffs. Uh, wait, why would you look for fertilizer near caves? Back wow. There you go. Back wow, some of the best fertilizer. Man, special. <laughs> but, uh, that's true. That's true. So I mean, that's, exactly, that's exactly where you want to look for this kind of stuff. And they ran across a couple of large buried earthenware jars that had a bunch of papyri in Codices. Codices, a codex, is kind of like an ancient version of what we would call a book now. Um, it's, if you think of it, it's almost maybe better like what you'd get at Kinko's when, you're, when you're, you go. It's, it's pages, back then it's vellum or papyrus, that is stitched along one side uh, in, a, in, in, in kind of a tough-bound covers. Anyway, so it's a book. Think of it as a book. But it's individual pages and things, and it's the thing that kind of took over after scrolls. Anyway, so these guys say, you know what? There are a bunch of European tourists here in, in Egypt that pay top dollar for papyri. I mean, we can find shopping lists from a thousand years ago, and people would go, oh, I'll give you a hundred dollars for that. Fine, you can't read it. I can't read it. Let's do it. So they started ripping pages out of the codices and selling them page by page. Because they couldn't read. They didn't know what's on them. And her mom couldn't read, but she's like, you know, books are dangerous. There's dangerous stuff in books. So she started burning them because she's like, no, I'm, I'm afraid that there would be dangerous effects if people started reading books. <laughs> World. Anyway, so, so these guys are like, no, we're going to do it. Now, being brothers and being in business with one another, they had a fight um, because don't do business with family, right? Not that sort of thing. So they started fighting about who gets which codices and how much can they sell them for. So they decided, we're going to give these to a Coptic priest who's, who's living in the area to say, you hold on to them until we get this figured out because we're fighting over who gets the most money and who gets the most papyri and who can rip out which codices, which of the codices, etc. You can take care of them. So the Coptic priest gave them to his brother-in-law who started selling the codices because why not, right? Everybody's like, how do I get money out of this? The priest brothers, oh, yeah, yeah, we can totally sell it. But instead of selling them for, you know, 20 bucks to tourists page by page, what we need to do is take the entire codex and sell it for like a thousand bucks to a museum. That's where the money is. And so they sold it to a museum, and the museum people are like, oh, yes, we'll take that. You know, once they figured out what it was, they're like, no, wait, you've been burning these? You've been ripping these apart and giving them to people? So once they figured out what they were, the museum people started actually chasing down the pages that they ripped out and finding them. 
the Egyptologists, people who were trained, suddenly go, this, this is crucially important. Okay, here's why. They're from the early years of the church, so like the first couple of centuries, like second, third century AD, and they're written in Coptic. What's Coptic? Anybody know? Okay. Pardon me? Um, you're both right, actually. It's a later Egyptian language that was made, primarily made use of Greek letters and some demotic. To, uh, well, yeah. You said, I think it's Egyptian. And you said, I think it's like Greek. I'm like, well, it's like Egyptian if you wrote it in Greek. So, And so this is what everybody had been writing in and reading for the last couple thousand years. If you'll remember, this is why it took Napoleon invading Egypt for the Egyptians to learn how to read their own hieroglyphics. Remember that? When we talked about that, that Napoleon brought his own Egyptologist and said, oh, here's what your hieroglyphs say. And they, really? Cool! We knew it said something, but we completely lost what it said. So, ironic that the Egyptians are. Yeah. So when did this language develop? How long did it take them to learn Coptic? Uh, Coptic? Coptic? Coptic is it just kind of evolved over time. I'm, um, I'm not exactly sure when it kicked in, but it, since they use a lot of Greek letters, my guess is that you're talking about um, around the turn of the the turn of the BC AD turnover, um, as they're trying to work with with Greeks and as they're trying to interact internationally, they just keep using this more and more as a lingua franca so that they could talk to other other people and just kind of lost learning how to read their own stuff. Um, how, okay, let's take, a, let's take a, a, a more modern example. Why is it that people will read modern English in the King James Bible and go, I don't get this at all. This old English stuff. You know, that's not old English. It's not even middle English. It's, that's modern English. This isn't my language. I don't understand this at all. I'll throw it down. I don't get any of that. It's like, that's like 400 years. Now picture language that's a couple thousand years old. People are like, and, and, and in a time where writing in and of itself is kind of a commodity, it's hard for, to come by stuff. Not everybody is uh, is literate. Then yeah, it's just it, it's lost really quickly. That's an interesting question. I don't I, now I'm gonna have to look it up and figure out when it actually kicked in. Okay, anyway. So, included in these codices, written in Coptic, were books like the First Apocalypse of James, which you have in, in your Bibles, right? Very familiar. Everybody's read the first book. Okay. It's the dialogue between James and Jesus, you know, brothers. And James is like, I really don't want to die. I'm afraid I'm going to get crucified like you got crucified. I really don't want to do this. And James is like, Jesus is like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Tell you what, I'm going to give you the secret incantations so that you can rise to the 72nd level, the highest level of heaven when you die. So you don't, don't look at me funny. You've read this in your Bibles. There's 72 levels of heaven. And if you have the secret passwords, you can get to the highest level. And thus get past the Demiurge. Right? You people are just so... Well, it's good. They were in jars. You didn't hear about this. Okay. The Demiurge. The heavens were in jars? Pardon me. No. In Gnostic thought... Pardon me? The 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 the, 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 the codices. 
necessarily God, 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 just the creator God that made the world, who's like an under-God, which means that the Demiurge, call him Yahweh if you want, is an evil God, because matter is evil. Remember in Gnostic thought we talked about this, matter, flesh, is a bad thing. Isn't that what Jesus talked about? Isn't that what Paul talked about? Your flesh is bad. Clearly the Bible says flesh is bad. Matter is bad. It makes you do bad things. Thought is good. Sitting around thinking about thought. That's what everybody should do. So the fact that this Demiurge, this Yahweh guy, made the material world, and the material world is bad, then the Demiurge, i.e. Yahweh, must be bad. I mean, it makes total logical sense. Actually, doesn't it make a certain amount of sense if you start with the premise that all matter is inherently bad, and all thought is inherently good? Yeah? Maybe they should have Ooh! Ooh! Harsh! <laughs> Pardon me? Why do you say, why did it, would God make something bad? Because he's a bad God. I mean, Yahweh's a bad God because he made material things. This other God, yeah. Uh, Okay, let me clarify. Let me clarify before I go any further. I disagree. I think Yahweh's a very good God. Okay. So I want to make sure. I'm talking about what the Gnostics say. So if Yahweh's like a minor God or whatever, who's above Yahweh? Exactly. Anyway, so... But in Gnostic thought, the, the, the idea, um, they, they would link, I mean, Plato talked about the, the, the importance of thought and the purity of thought. If you could just get back to pure thought, everybody would do the right thing. If you just wouldn't get complicated with all the other issues and all the other situations and all the other circumstantial things, if you could just get back to pure logic and thought, everything would be fine. If you read Paul and you read him saying, you know, flesh is making me messed up, my spirit wars with my flesh. Right? If you link these two things, you can see what the Gnostics are saying. Right. Fleshly, material things are bad. Thought, pure thought is good. Therefore, anything that links us to material stuff is bad. Because we never sin in our thoughts. Not. Okay. All sin is thought. But a Gnostic, a good Gnostic would say, right. But all sin is predicated by stuff in the material world. If you just. And you just go, I sin by lusting. And you go, after something fleshly, right? I sin by hating another material thing, right? Because they took something from you that was material. Any sin that you have comes from... Again, I'm not agreeing with the Gnostics. I'm just saying what they say. Anyway, there's also the letter to of Peter to Philip, because, you know, you need those things, which, in which Peter calls Philip to come back to the rest of the apostles, because Philip had gone off to do his own stuff, and he said, I want to remind you of the, of the visions we had of Jesus as an aeon, a, a being of pure light. Remember when, when he was resurrected and we, we realized that he's this entire time has been this, this aeon, this, this pure being, this light being. He didn't have flesh at all because, you know, flesh is bad, right? So Jesus is pure light. In Gnostic thought, the aeons, the aeons were spiritual emanations who always split off in pairs from this unknowable you want to call it God, you want to call it source, you want to call it the force, I don't care what you call it, but this spirituality, this pure thought that's out there from whom all these other emanations came. So these aeons, and there's always 
a male mind and a female truth. Those are the things that split off in pairs. Oh, this makes total logical sense. You guys are shaking your heads, but no. So that, didn't God make things in pairs? Didn't he even have people, you know, animals in pairs in the ark? Everything comes in pairs. Male and female, he made them always. It's, it's clear. So, male mind and a female the truth. So when the female Aeon, Sophia, i.e. wisdom, split off separately from her bonded male Demiurge, i.e. Yahweh, this creator god thing, bad Juju Magumbo went down. Because wisdom is separated from materialism. The material world got separated from wisdom. Therefore, you can't have any wisdom in the material world. It's clear as day. <laughs> Again, this should strike you as, well, but from their perspective, once you define the terms, once you've decided what these terms mean, that clearly there are male and female aeons emanating from the sort. I mean, you can just look at that, just looking around the world. I mean, it just makes total sense. There's, you know, they break off of male and female pairs. If wisdom gets divorced from material world, then you can't have any wisdom in the material world, right? You go, well, yeah. And since wisdom was, was divorced from the demiurge, we have to divorce ourselves from the material. If you allow people to define all the terms, it makes total sense. Right? Yeah. These letters where Peter is talking to Philip and that, are they claiming that these were directly written by Peter and directly okay. written by James? The letters were, yes. The, you know, the, the uh, Apocalypse James is purportedly written by James. The letter from, Philip, or from Peter to Philip is purportedly from Peter to Philip. But let's be honest, very few people at the time actually thought that that's what the case was. I mean, this is the thing where you read a lot of these apocryphal books that claim to be something. Most people would say, oh, I don't actually think that they are. But it just becomes truth. Everybody goes, yeah, that's the sort of thing Peter would say. But to be honest, there are a lot of Christians that feel that way. You ask them about you know, uh, stuff that, that Paul wrote, and they're like, well, we're not sure he actually wrote it. You know, we're not sure that Matthew actually wrote Matthew. We just call it that. Okay, so yeah. it's, it's kind of like, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure Matthew wrote Matthew, but anyway, Christ and the Holy Spirit aeons were thus created to combat the evil demiurge, Christ and the female Holy Spirit, See, male Christ and female Holy Spirit, which is why the Bible breaks with gender conventions, because you should use the word it in Greek to talk about the Holy Spirit, because Holy Spirit is a neuter. Now, anybody take German or anything with different. In Greek, Holy Spirit, pneuma, is a neuter word. And so you'd say, the Holy Spirit, it came into my room. Just, you know, that's the way that works. So the Bible breaks with that grammatical convention and uses the masculine to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he came into my room. And it's like, really, you actually picked something where in Greek it's pretty clear that if you're going to put a gender to it, you put a masculine gender, and you declared it's a female gender. So, they're helping us to rightly focus on the immaterial. But that evil demiurge Yahweh has his own emanations, called the archons, the principalities, the rulers, first ones, however you want to say that, to create this evil material world, and the disciples are thus called upon to fight against the archons. Okay. Isn't it? It's so much better than the Bible. Which 
just actually the whole thing. That's the whole gist of, of Gnosticism is to say, and to be honest, most cults. You've read the Bible. Now get the real story. Isn't that what like ninety-five percent of History Channel specials about the Bible are? Oh You've read the Bible, but let's get the real story. You go, yeah, that's that's Gnosticism. Because didn't Paul? Let's be honest. In, in Ephesians six twelve. Didn't Paul himself say, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the archons? <laughs> Actually, yes, that's the word he uses in, in Greek. And so the, the Gnostics say, Paul himself said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the archons. Paul himself said we have to fight them, because we've decided that that word means this. And now we can go back into the Bible and figure out, well, now that we've decided what this word means, why look, the Bible proves it. I love groups. Any groups that sit there and go, by the way, anytime in the Bible you see this word, it automatically means what we think it means. Therefore, there are seven things that are this. And every time you see it, you have to look for the seven things that are this. You read into it. Of course, Paul also said about Christ and Colossians 1.16, whether thrones or powers or archons or authorities, all things were created by Christ and for Christ which is not what the Gnostics say. So it's interesting that they're like, go back to the Bible, look for the word archon. It proves the right point. In Colossians, don't read Colossians. But in Ephesians, the use of the word archon totally proves our point. In Colossians, it totally disproves our point. So don't read Colossians. Okay, but the most famous of the codices was the Gospel of Thomas. So if you've heard any of these, you'll have heard of this guy. It became immediately popular among scholars because... It was the oldest physical gospel that we had. Up until this point, um, we just had chunks of things from like the 7th century, 8th century, whatever. This is from the 3rd century. Like, this is the oldest gospel. Nowadays, the oldest gospel fragments we have come from the Gospel of John, dated from around 100 AD. So, woohoo, Pete's Gospel of Thomas. Anyway, but they'll look at this and say, well, this is the oldest thing we've got, so we should kind of evaluate this. Um, it had important sayings of Jesus. And it had a lot of sayings from the Bible of Jesus. Uh, it had him talking about parable of the sower and the seeds, that sort of thing. But it also has some of these. Where there are three gods, they are gods. Where there are two or one, I am with him. And if you think you're pulling this out of context, no, it's just sitting there. It doesn't make any more sense other than that. His disciples said, when will you appear to us, and when will we see you? And Jesus said, when you undress without being ashamed, and take your clothes and put them under your feet like little children and trample on them, then you will see the Son of the Living One, and you will not be afraid. Yeah. Okay, is there, does he explain that all? No. Blessed is the lion that a person will eat, and the lion will become human. And anathema is the person whom a lion will eat, and the lion will become human. What? <laughs> when you make the two into one, and no, he doesn't explain which two or what or what. Just, it's out there. When you make the two into one, and when you make the inside like the outside, and the outside like the inside, and the above like the below, that is, to make the male and the female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, and the female will not be female, and when you make eyes instead of an eye, and a hand instead of a hand, and a foot instead of a foot, an image instead of an image, then you will enter the kingdom. If you bring it into being with it, no, I don't know what it is, there's no context, 
If you bring it into being within you, then that which you have will save you. If you do not have it within you, then that which you do not have within you will kill you. Get this from a mental Okay. This is the thing. Now, let's be fair. There are a lot of people that would listen to Jesus and say, yeah, that sounds about like stuff you'd say. I didn't understand any of the stuff you'd say. But at least this stuff, you know, if you really chew on it, it makes some sense. I can't figure some of this stuff out. I can try to read it. But a lot of this is, if, you, if you're involved in cults, if, uh, if, if you're just reading bad philosophers, there's a lot of people out there that people read and they go, man, he is so wise. Why do you say that? I couldn't understand anything he said. It was like incomprehensible, which is why I know he's so much smarter than me. Or I'm peyote. You know, it doesn't mean he's necessarily smarter than you. Anyway, due to its antiquity, a lot of liberal scholars began using the Gospel of Thomas as the basis for judging the relative merits of the biblical Gospels. Which is why I read to you a number of sayings there, so that you could sit there and go, well, that's trying to screw in. You go, right. Now we can judge the Bible Gospels by the Gospel of Thomas. To the degree to which it follows that, that's the degree to which we can trust the Bible. Yeah? Okay. Did what they find have a title? Gospel of Thomas, yeah. It was called Gospel of mm-hmm. Thomas. Okay, I just... Was... Some of them don't necessarily, but yeah. This is why the Jesus Seminar, remember we talked about these guys a couple of times, it's why the Jesus Seminar used the Gospel of Thomas as a way of gauging the sayings of Jesus in the Bible. To the degree to which they were different from the Gospel of Thomas, either from the Gospel of Thomas's descriptions of them, or different from the sort of Jesus you see in the Gospel of Thomas, then you could decide that that's probably not something he actually said, because the Gospel of Thomas is the most reliable Gospel because it was the oldest copy that we had, being only about 200 years after Jesus died. Which is why the book that the Jesus Seminar put out, talking about whether or not we can trust the sayings of Jesus in Scripture, is called the five Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and most importantly, Thomas. Yes? When they were picking the, the Bible, uh-huh. is there proof that they had that book and it got defined? Oh, when they, you mean when they were put, first putting together the... No, this wasn't written yet by the time they were first putting together okay. the Bible. Because they were first... When they first put together what we think of as the Bible... Um, one of the guys on the committee had been a disciple of John. Okay. One of the guys sitting there at that particular conference deciding which books go into the Bible said, well, my discipler was John, who wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation and three letters, by the way, I think all five of those books should be in there. Um, and he used to talk about, you know, when Matthew was scribbling down his Gospel, you know, I'm pretty sure this is the right stuff. This Gospel of Thomas was written 150 years after that, maybe 200 years after that. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm not even going to get into Q. We can talk about this. Anyway, 1946. Let's get into something a little different. Revised Standard Version of the Bible was published. Anybody ever, ever read the Revised Standard? Okay, there you go. I have one too. Now, you remember the American Standard Version that we talked about that was published back in 1901? which itself was just an Americanized tweaking of the revised version that had been written back in 1881. They took this British revised version and said, can we 
can we make those S's into Z's as God intended? Can we drop all those U's out? You know, all that kind of stuff. And that had just been a modernized tweaking of the King James Version from back in 1611. So they were like, oh, okay, can we take the these and thous out unless they're specifically talking about God? Yeah, can we do this kind of stuff? Um, well, in the 1930s, scholars are like, you know, we've done a tweak off a tweak off of a tweak off of an old Bible. Maybe it's time we actually had a new translation. We keep finding all these new texts. We keep finding better, we've got better versions, better, cleaner copies of the ancient Hebrew and Greek texts than they had in 1611. We can do a better version of this. And so maybe, maybe we just come up with a new translation. So they used the American Standard Version as, a, as an outline. Like, we're going to hang stuff on this. But every verse, we're going to go back and retranslate from the best texts of the Greek and Hebrew that we have available, which any good translation should do. It's like, oh, let's just go back and... I mean, this, these guys were all about readability. The ASV, that's all about readability. So let's not reinvent that wheel. Let's use, you know some of the vernacular stuff that they use, but let's make sure that everything we do is going back to the Greek and the Hebrew. And we're going to create a revised standard version. There was the American standard version. This is now a revised version. So, I say this because it can get really confusing when you're looking at names of Bibles. There was a revised version. There was an American standard version. This is a revised American standard version. So, which is why the revised version and the revised standard version totally different bodies. Like, any of you care, but at least now you know, and if you say, oh, what was that? I, I forgot what he said. Read the notes later. Anyway, as you can imagine, people went, what? It's, it's one thing to tweak it, but you actually think you can do this better? If you want to modernize the King James, I might huff and puff a little bit. But to think that you can out-translate the King James? I know. Sarah's just like, I can't imagine that. <laughs> so some of the changes uh, were based on what was contained in the oldest text available. Because remember, in general, people like to go with the oldest text available. Which is sometimes a really good idea. And sometimes not a great idea. Why? Why, was it, why in general is that not a bad idea? to go back to the oldest text available. Closest to the source is going to be the most accurate. Why is that not always the most the best way to do it? Thomas. Gospel Thomas is older than the other. Just because it's older, that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's solider. I go back to I go back to the the spaghetti western uh, uh, concept of history. In the 1960s, Italians wanted to make some westerns. So they had to, because they don't have all these backlots of westerns, they had to create their own western towns. They didn't have a backlog of all these western costumes, so they had to go make all their own western costumes. And so they said, I tell you what, instead of just going to the people who produce Bonanza and saying, you know what, can we borrow your stuff? By the way, nobody in the Old West dressed the way you dress on Bonanza. They said, why don't we go back to old photographs and figure it out and what it looks like. If you want to look at movies from the 19-teens, Old Silence starring Tom Mix, and say, let's judge the Old West by that. People who were in the Old West are in these movies. 
And let's judge the way the Old West looks compared to, say, the Old West of the 1960s Italian Westerns. The 1960s Italian Westerns are infinitely more accurate than the 19-teens Westerns were in the United States. Just because something is older, even closer to the time, it does not make it more accurate. Sometimes it just makes it more less familiar to those people, so they actually had to study to figure it out. So sometimes, in general, yes, the older, the better. Less glosses written onto it. But that's not an automatic thing. Anyway, for instance, Luke 22, Jesus said, uh, Luke says, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In the RSV, it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body. That's it. The oldest text didn't have the rest of that stuff. Therefore, their Bible didn't have the rest of that stuff. Now, other Gospels include some of that stuff. Paul, when writing about in 1 Corinthians, includes the, the, that other stuff. But they're like, yeah, but our oldest version of Luke didn't have that. Therefore, we're dropping it out of Luke. Because clearly, it was something added later. Possibly, but you're ignoring the other textual evidence. Interestingly, in later editions, they put it back in. Is that because public pressure went, what? You can't take that out. Or is that because they went, well, actually, other Gospels have that in. Paul is citing this as if it were something in the Gospels. Maybe the oldest text of Luke that we have is an incomplete text. Maybe that's more the truth. I don't know. Or other changes based on new interpretations of biblical words. For instance, Isaiah 7.14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Right? RSV, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Why did they change it from virgin to young woman? Yeah. They rightly noted that the Hebrew word Alma does not necessarily mean virgin. It could just mean young woman, couldn't it? Sure. Of course, they failed to give weight to the fact that Jewish scholars, when they were translating this into Greek for the Septuagint, translated Parthenos, meaning virgin. So to the Greek-speaking Jewish scholars, they're like, and by that, you know, we mean virgin. Plus, what kind of a sign will it be? A young woman will give birth to a child. <laughs> None of us have ever heard of this. That's all right. You can tell because they'll call him Emmanuel. Well, then everybody's just going to start calling their kid Emmanuel. It's a horrible sign if it doesn't mean it. By the way, in Matthew, in the RSV, when this is cited, they say, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, because the word in the gospel is Parthenos, meaning virgin. But since this could mean something else, it make it mean something else. Whole passages were, that weren't present in the oldest text, like the woman caught in adultery, though. That last chapter of Mark, all those were just put as footnotes. Yeah, those, those aren't from the original Bible. Whereas the Catholic apocryphal books were included in their entirety. And so Protestant pastors went bananas. Like, what? This is horrible. Some even started burning Bibles. Because they're like, this is, cause this is an, an abomination. In fact, <laughs> one pastor was like, and it's hard to burn, proving that it's of Satan. 
Interestingly, uh, one of the Bible scholars involved, a guy named Bruce Metzger, said, oh, at least they're only burning the translation and not the translators. It's a step up from <laughs> Like, it's a step up from Tyndale, man. They burned Tyndale at the stake. Now they're just burning the books. I don't like it, but... All right. As a result of all this, the RSV became the popular version of the Bible amongst mainline Protestant liberals. The Presbyterian churches, the Lutheran churches, all that kind of stuff. The, the ones that were moving more and more away from being particularly biblically conservative with things, and Catholics, they liked it until they got their own their own version of the Bible in, in, in a couple of, of decades. But it never really caught on with American fundamentalists or evangelicals. Because the fundamentalists and evangelicals are like, you're messing with the Bible. You're chopping parts out. This is not cool. No, it's not young woman. It's virgin. In fact, they, they talked about the, the uh, Isaiah 7.14 test. That from now on, anytime somebody makes a Bible, first place you should turn is Isaiah 7.14 and say, did they say young woman or did they say virgin? Because I want to know. So the, the evangelicals are like, man, we still need our own good version. This works. But we need a good version, a good scholarly modern translation. And then they had to wait until 1963, until they finally got one that they go, this is extremely scholarly and extremely conservative. I loves me, the, the New American Standard Version. And by the way, there's, it's the American Standard Version, the new version of that, right? So remember where all these things are coming from. But it's an extremely literal one. It's like, we're just taking the Greek words and the Hebrew words and plopping them into English, man. Which makes it very clunky. An amazing number of people read it and go, this is as bad as the King James, man. I can't figure any of this stuff out. Which means that with several other less than scholarly paraphrases that popped up over the decades, it took until 1973 for an actually legitimately good, modern, scholarly, conservative translation to come out with the NIV. So, of course, when it came out, there was intense backlash to that, too. Because there's always intense backlash to anything that anybody goes, okay, I think we've done it this time, so somebody's going to hate it. To the degree to which somebody loves it, somebody else is going to hate it. Trust me, every sermon I ever get. To the degree somebody comes up and says, that was awesome, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to hear from somebody. <laughs> 1946, Chinese Civil War resumed. Remember the Chinese Civil War from a couple weeks back? Nazi stuff going down between the Republic of China, the Democratic-ish Republic of China, and the, the Communist uh, Party in China. The USSR was officially backing the Communist Party. The United States is officially backing the Republic of China. That's going to end well, clearly. That's going to make everybody closer. About 37 seconds after the Japanese left, starts right back up again. Been going on for years. Japanese invaded China, bad stuff. Japanese left, backed out in a really nasty civil war, and continued until 1949, when Mao Zedong proclaimed the People's Republic of China with its new capital in Beijing, right? And as we talked about, the Republic of China then moved to little bitty island of Taiwan. You, go, you get that, as long as you don't call yourself anything but Taiwan, and you don't ever pretend to be an independent state. As long as you sit there, you can call yourselves whatever you want amongst yourselves, but you cannot call yourselves the Republic of China, and you cannot pretend to be an independent state. And as long as you do that, we'll let you not die. But I want you to remember this date. Because next time we get together, you're going to see why this date is important. That it's 1949 that China becomes communist. 
remember that for next time. It's kind of a crucial time in, uh, in Eastern communist, Western democracy kind of times. The Nazi propagandist, uh, Joseph Goebbels, had coined the term Iron Curtain in 1945, talking about the Soviet Union. But it was this 1946 speech by Winston Churchill that brought that phrase into the English language. He's talking about from, you know, from the Baltic to the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. And, and, and because the Soviet Union is controlling, I should do it from this way for you. The Soviet Union is controlling everything in Eastern Europe. And he's like, this, we absolutely need to realize that this is becoming a Soviet sphere of influence, but also a measure of control directly from Moscow, of Poland, of uh, Czechoslovakia, all these different places. And it doesn't help that Stalin, that same year, kept arguing that capitalism itself makes war inevitable. In one of his speeches, he has this extended quote, and you can read it online if you'd like to, this extended quote about why um, the war broke out, this, the World War II broke out, as the inevitable result of the development of world economic and political forces on the basis of present-day monopolistic capitalism. As long as people are capitalists, they will see scarcity and demand, they will fight for things, they will use armed, uh, armed force to control their own spheres of influence. Unlike the Soviet Union, which would never use armed force to control a sphere of influence. That's right, man. It's, 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 it's a paradise. So when you look across the Berlin Wall, and West Berlin looks a lot nicer than East Berlin, that's all just propaganda. Even, I was telling one day yesterday, even into like the, the 60s and 70s, they were showing films and, 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 and pictures to their people of the Great Depression saying, this, this is the way it is in America. Most Americans don't eat on a daily basis. All Americans have to wait in food lines like this. And you go, that's a 40-year-old photograph. How would you know that? Okay. Maybe a little off topic, but since I'm doing the whole propaganda section in class, um, there is a North Korea film that was leaked. Um, oh, my. After a really bad like, snowstorm, and it has Americans um, lining up to get coffee, and they're like, Americans only get coffee from snow once a day when FEMA <laughs> comes in. And they had like a Red Cross uh, building up um, and like flimsy walls. They had thrown them together to have people have shelter. And like, this is where Americans live today, and, I, and, this, and this is what they're told. Yeah, and if that's all you hear all day, every day, part of you should sit there and say, but if you are waiting in food lines all the time, if you have three, three families to one relatively small apartment, wouldn't you say, man, I'd like to go to America? You know, not if all you've ever heard from America is they got it even worse than you do. You know, they loved in the late 60s and early 70s, they're like, oh, we have color film now of riots in the streets. They're like, woohoo, new propaganda every day in every city of America. Look at this. Could have sworn I saw that film last week. No, it's a new film. You know, so, so, yeah, anyway. So he's like, it's, it's capitalism itself. As long as there is capitalists, there will be fighting. That is the as, until the entire world is made communist, which we're working toward. Because in height, there will be fighting. So, President outlined to Congress what it was called the Truman Doctrine, where he said, "You know, I believe it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures." I believe we must assist free peoples to work out their own destinies in their own way. I believe our help should be primarily through economic and financial aid, 
which is essential to economic stability and orderly political processes. We as the United States need to make sure we help the free world remain free. We're going to actively, but not directly, oppose communism. Everywhere it rears its head, we're going to work on this by economically supporting countries that are in danger of falling to the communists. Good plan, bad plan. Okay. So you say bad plan. Terry says that obviously they didn't do it because there's communists all over. You said bad plan. Why? Uh, uh, during the Johnson era, all the uh, countries where the CIA came in to put in their own dictators, they weren't communists, but they were worse. Now this this brings up an interesting question: Is does that mean the plan is bad? Does that mean the implementation of the plan is bad? Does that mean, by nature, even a good plan can go bad? Power tends to corrupt absolute power, corrupts absolutely. It's, it's a legitimate question, because taking a stand against communism, well, the next year, uh, American political advisor Bernard Baruch coined another term when he was talking to the South Carolina legislature. He said, let us not be deceived. We are today in the midst of a cold war. It may not be a hot war, like we're used to, but we do have a cold war. So in the span of a year and a half, you've got the terms Iron Curtain and Cold War being coined. He says, our enemies are, are to be found abroad and at home. Let us never forget this. Our unrest is the heart of their success. The peace of the world is, is the hope and the goal of our political system. It is the despair and defeat of those who stand against us. We can depend only on ourselves. He's like, you have to be aware. There's a system out there that is trying to undermine freedom. And if we don't take a stand against it at home or abroad, there's going to be problems. Well, you, you tell me. I mean, is the goal of our political system, is the goal of democracy in the United States, that United States be free, or that people be free? It's a, I mean, it's a legitimate question. Is it? No. People shouldn't be under the thumb of tyranny, starting with us. Or is it, us shouldn't be under the thumb of tyranny? Depends on how you read Tom Paine's works, how you read uh, Sam Adams, how you read uh, stuff that uh, uh, Washington said. Is it that we want our country to be free, or is it that we want to be a bastion of freedom and make others free? Again, that has funky permutations. It's also where you get the, the Monroe Doctrine, which was, anybody remember? Okay. That and also, you know, it's like, and all of this is ours. You know, it's like North and South America is our responsibility, and if we really love the world, we'll make it all America. Which is a bad permutation of that basic concept of, just like Britain says, you know, make the world Britain. This is what you need to do if you really want to help them. It's a bad implementation of what, in some people's minds, was an altruistic venture. We actually think we've got it well. Let's make everybody else as happy as we are by making them us. You know, okay, that's a really horrible plan. But if you actually think that you are doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong, I can see why you might want to do that. Of course, that's what Stalin thought, too. So it's like, it's as complicated um, as to whether or not that really is what we're trying to do in America. But it's a legitimate question. So there is an existing uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities. That's been in existence since late 30s which is a bad thing, right? 
It is absolutely horrible to have a standing committee making sure that people are actively working against the interests of the United States. You agree, right? Now, it's a good idea to have a standing group trying to make sure that people are actively working against the interests of the United States, right? Or is that a good idea that has some very bad implementations? I want a CIA, don't you? I want an FBI, don't you? Does that mean that everything the CIA does and everything the FBI does is by definition good? No, but don't you want people whose whole job it is to make sure that foreign spies aren't getting information? So the HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, rightly was concerned about communists in the United States because there's a lot of communist spies in the United States at this time, actively turning state secrets over to the Soviet Union. Weren't there? Rosenbergs, people like that? Okay, maybe we should talk about those. There were a ton of communist spies in the United States turning state secrets over to the, over to the USSR. Don't you want people trying to make sure they stop doing that? So they rightly said, there's a communist problem in the United States. So let's unconstitutionally hunt down potential American communists and say, if you are a member of the Communist Party, if you have any ties to the Communist Party, you're in deep trouble. And you go, well, but isn't the whole point of freedom that you can be free to be an idiot? I'm a member of the, I like to hit myself in the head with a stick party. Don't I have the freedom in the United States to be a member of the, I want to hit myself in the head with a stick party? That's the whole point of freedom. Not that you have the right to be smart, but you have the opportunity to be smart and the right to be an idiot. So the idea of rooting out people who are communists or have any connections to communism is itself a Yeah, should that be against the law then? It's dumb. You shouldn't do that. Should it be against the law? Okay, my point is that HUAC rightly is saying we need to find out who's working against the American interests. It is unconstitutional to drag people in front of, because uh, uh, they decided it was unconstitutional, which is why I feel comfortable saying this, is that it's unconstitutional to be dragging people in front of a House committee and saying, are you or are you not, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Do you know anybody who's been a member of the Communist Party? Have you ever read any Communist literature? If so, you're in some serious trouble. It's like, but that's not American to do that, to judge somebody like that. So in 1947, they set their sights on Hollywood, blacklisting any filmmakers who either, one, had any ties to the Communist Party at all. Have you been a member of the Communist Party? Do you know anybody who's a member of the Communist Party? Who do you know that's a member of the Communist Party? That's what most people did. It's just like, I'm not. Do you know anybody? Probably not. I'm sure you know somebody, which means now you're lying. And the other thing, the only other bad thing that you can do here, if you don't have ties, is to not tell us whether or not you have ties or anybody that you know has ties to the Communist Party. So, Christy, do you have ties to the Communist Party? Have you been a member of the Communist Party? No. You're in Hollywood. You know, surely you know some people. By the way, if you tell us who they are, we will consider you a friend of this committee and because they're working for American interests. We know that you know people. So if you don't tell us, then clearly you're working for the interests of the enemy. So, if you tell us who they are, they're going to go to prison. Tell us who's a member of the Communist Party that you know. There you go. <laughs> because that kind of fear makes you rat out other people. <laughs> so, people so people always say, I don't see why people would support this. Why would you? It's like, if you're under those circumstances, you're going to go to jail unless you tell me about your friends, in which case they're going to go to jail. 
And this is 47. We're not even into the McCarthy hearings in the 50s, man. But, Charlie Chaplin said, I'm never going back to America. He got blacklisted. He's like, I'm done. This isn't my country anymore. This is, I, I don't even know this place. Orson Welles like, I'm going to go live out abroad. Uh, Paul Robeson. Tons of people are like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this. Um, an amazing number of people are like, ah, I have the right to freedom of speech. I don't have to answer that if I don't want to. Like, sure, but now you're in contempt of court. Go <laughs> but I have the right not to answer. Yes, you do. But now you're in contempt of court. Go to jail. <laughs> so I'm not in jail for being a communist. Now I'm in jail for not answering a legit question. So yeah, this is kind of a hard time. What can we learn from all this today? You sit there and go, yeah, genuine fears of genuine problems are sending people to do genuinely unconstitutional things. An amazing number of people sat there and said, I know, but if it'll stop communism, I'm for it. Is this something that in any way, 70 years later, we can learn anything from? I'm not necessarily even saying, clearly, this group or that person is doing this thing. But the basic mindset of whatever I need to do to stand against what I think is wrong is justified. Because, yes, one side will look at, at, at the government right now and say, you are doing unconstitutional things because you're afraid. And people are saying, well, as long as it protects me, I guess it's okay. The other side says, you are burning innocent people's cars. You are smashing in donut shop windows. You're breaking into ATMs saying, because you're scared of the president and you think you're righteous? Both sides are looking at the other sides going, I have every right to do this because of fear. Now, we talked about that. But isn't this a legitimate thing for us to stop and think about? It's like, well, what does fear and hysteria naturally lead to? Fear and hysteria. Fear and hysteria will never lead you to a feeling of security. Ever. Because, okay, Sarah and I were even just talking about uh, at staff meeting. You're playing paintball, and you're running around, and you're like, okay, duck, I'm in a safe place. How do I know it's safe? How do I know somebody isn't going to come up and shoot me from behind? How do I know? And he's like, fear and, 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 and hysteria. Oh, but I get to a safe place. Now I feel secure. You go, but if you still feel that people are literally out there gunning for you, how long do you feel secure in that safe place? Fear and, security, fear and insecurity will never lead to a feeling of security. And it might, rightly, and rightly, seem like fear-mongering to us today. We might sit there and go, oh, that's ridiculous. But you have to remember, communism was becoming kind of a big thing. You said, well, it didn't work, the, the Truman Doctrine. Look at the way the world looked in 1945. This red block, that's, that's communism. That's... Soviet Union. By 1949, this is the way the world looked. Four years later. And this is the same world in 1962. And you may say, oh, I don't see a lot of difference. Well, Vietnam now. And it's but also, there's an aggressively communist nation 103 miles off the coast of Florida. This is an openly aggressive communist nation to whom Soviet Prime Minister Khrushchev was sending nuclear missiles to point at the United States. This would be the same Khrushchev who had recently been banging his shoe 
while he was talking at the United Nations and shouting, about the capitalist states, it doesn't depend on whether you or not you uh, whether or not we exist. It doesn't depend on you whether or not we exist. If you don't like us, then don't accept our invitations. Don't invite us to come see you. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. I'm sending nuclear missiles. Oh, we were just looking up this translation. What did he say? He said that we will, you will beat us to the grave, or something like we will outlast you, outlive, we will outlive you. Okay, I can see where that that would be another one, but since, pardon me? Or literally, you'll go to the grave before we will. We'll see you in the grave. However, you want to say that. But he got a great translation, so that's a great line. And nobody at the time said that was a bad translation. The, the Soviet Union said, yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Apparently, depending on which sources you read, some sources would say this is a bad translation. What they mean is, you'll all be dead before we are, which is a much warmer and fuzzier way of saying it. <laughs> or some, trans some sources you read say, this is the way it got translated, and the Soviet Union went, yeah. Either way, this Khrushchev, who said, we will see you in the grave before us, took great pains to make sure we got there before they did. Sending nuclear missiles to Cuba, sending nuclear weapons to, uh, to East, East Germany, making sure that he had multiple nuclear weapons pointed at the West while saying, by the way, you guys are going to be in the grave before we will. So, this is what the world, by the way, it's a fake picture. There is no picture of him holding the shoe, banging it. This is, but it's, it really happened. It's just, I picked a picture that somebody made to do it because it's a famous fake picture, so everybody thinks it's fake. The point is, it really did happen where he's banging his shoe. It's a different sort of thing. But um, everybody in the West is like, this guy's a nut, and he wants to destroy us. By the time you get to 1987, this is the way the world looks in terms of communism. Communism is all over the place. Now, back to your question, well, obviously, the Truman Doctrine didn't work. Proponents of the Truman Doctrine would say, that's why only this amount is red, compared to what it could have been. There are a number of different countries all over the world that were threatening to go, com to go communist. The only reason that you don't have more red is because of this. Now, again, like we talked about the other day with, with uh, atomic weapons, you know, we're talking potentialities. You don't know what would have happened otherwise. But the argument is, when you have all these countries going to communist, what is it that will deter people from going communist? What is it that the communists are inciting in the countries that they're, that they're, that they're uh, finding purchase in? That <coughs> impending communist domination of the world was a very real threat. And it's very easy for us, I mean, even those of us that were around and cognizant in the 80s, it's very easy for us to sit there 30 years later and go, obviously never happened. Well, it happened to all these red countries. And why didn't Y2K happen? I mean, all these people were so worried and taking all sorts of steps to avoid computer shutdowns when obviously nothing happened. So obviously all that work to avoid computer shutdowns was pointless because nothing ever happened, right? Or did nothing ever happen because people worked so hard to avoid computer shutdowns? So as many things you go, the Truman Doctrine, all the things that America did, and unfortunately all the even unpleasant things that America did, with propping up dictators and things that did nothing to, stench, to stop the flow of communism 
Or is that what stopped the flow of communism? At which point you say, even if it was successful, is it right to support a dictator who was cruel to his people just to make sure that there wasn't a communist group there? Again, it's, it's not a, it's a simple question, but it's not an easy answer. Because you sit there and you go, well, I can't say, yay, yay, dictator is horrible to his people. And yet, once the dictator's gone, there isn't necessarily going, to, necessarily going to be another dictator taking his place. Whereas once communist sticks in, after the communist leader's gone, it's still communist. So which is worse? This communist spread where the world is getting more and more red, where multiple communist prime ministers say, by the way, our whole job is to make sure the entire world is communist, and it will never be peace until everybody's communist. We will see you in the grave. Or to make sure that only nice people are running countries. I'm not saying that propping up Noriega or anything. I'm not saying this is a good thing. What I'm saying is, what is your priority? If, if the priority is let's have to make sure only nice people run the countries, good luck with that. If your priority is making sure that the individual people in the countries are treated best, okay, maybe you should let the world go communist. If your priority is making sure that communism doesn't spread, I don't know. Again, I'm not trying to take sides. I'm not trying to say, I'm certainly not trying to say that propping up dictators is a good idea. What I'm saying is, is people make decisions based on the priorities that they have. But then, all of a sudden, the communist world imploded. By the year 2000, that's the communist world. Why? Well, you can make an argument that communism started crumbling from the inside. They realized the way we're doing this just cannot keep working on a large scale. But really, when it comes down to it, to oversimplify it, it's because one man decided he wanted to do the right thing. He's like, I'm going to get in trouble for it. My own people are going to hate me for it. But it's the right thing for my people. To start decentralizing the government, to stop all the secret police stuff, to try to work with foreign nations. We have to do, we can't just keep being a police state. We can't keep it going. We've got to do the right thing. And his own people, yeah. He's like, our people are starving. We get, uh, we're under an embargo from the United States that's working really well. He's like, we absolutely have to. And, and then the moment he started decentralizing things, the moment he started saying, he removed the, the fact that there has to be the Communist Party in charge of the country from the Constitution. He's like, no, no, it doesn't have to be communists in charge. It doesn't have to be the party. As soon as he did that, there was massive problems in, in the Soviet Union, massive anti-communist sentiment. Once people didn't have a secret police to be as afraid of, they were no longer afraid. And if you had multiple generations where you have removed the whole concept of doing the right thing because of God or morality, and all you have left is do the right thing or else the state will get you, and by the way, we're, we're, making, we're defanging the state, he's like, the Soviet Union is falling apart from the inside. We've got demonstrations all over the place. People are starving. The embargo is working. We absolutely have to, though, continue to do the right thing. We need to stop being a police state. So one man choosing to do the right thing and another man actively holding him accountable to it, saying, you say that you want to do the right thing. And I was just talking to Wendy the other day. I'm like, I remember, I remember watching and hearing four words. I'm like, four words are going to change the world. Tear down this wall. You say... You say you want glasnost. You say you want peristroke. You say you want to work with people. You say you want to pull down divisions. There is one absolutely tangible sign of division. There is one perfect 
perfect metaphor for everything you're talking about. I'm standing here talking in front of the Berlin Wall. Mr. Gorbachev, if you actually mean anything that you're saying, tear down this wall. What can we learn from that today? talked about this before. I mean, yes, important leaders can go and do important things, and one person can change the world. But at its core, it's like, can we do economic sanctions to prevent the flow of communism and the growth of communism? Yeah, but it's still going to grow, but maybe you stopped it growing as fast as it could, but maybe you didn't. Maybe you actually caused more people to want to be communists because they really didn't like the dictator that you put in there. There's all sorts of things that you can do with all these different outside sorts of policies. We can try to fight a war. No, we're going to fight a cold war. We're going to we're going to back different people in Korea. We're going to back different people in Vietnam. We're going to do all this kind of stuff. And it's like, as long as we keep doing this, as long as we keep making decisions out of that fear and out of that, I'm going to try to outplay you on the chessboard thing. And you go, well, then you're still going to play chess, aren't you? At some point, when human beings say, I've changed. I don't think we should do this anymore. I'm not going to make a decision out of fear. I'm going to get lambasted and crucified by my own people, but it's the right thing to do. Another guy going, and I'm going to help you do this by saying, do the right thing. And I'm going to put, Gorbachev later is like, kind of helped, you know, because I can look at my people and go, I can't, we got to now. We got to do the right thing. He just called me out on international television. I got to do the right thing. So you just go, at what point does it all come down to changing the insides of human beings and that that's what real change always comes from is changing the inside of human beings let's pray dear lord i thank you so much thank you that you are so much more on top of these things than we are and so many things that we see just as looming and terrifying you know where they're coming from and you know where they're going you will still be God tomorrow. You will still be God a hundred years from now. You will still be God a million years from now. Help us, Lord, to have your heart as we look at things. Help us to, to understand where you're coming from. And I pray, Lord, help us to lay our fears at your feet as an act of worship to say, Lord, you're in charge of this, not me. In Jesus' name.